All right, let's get started. Um, Scott left you with this question. Um, that is, how do you know? Paul says, when I was with you, I, I urged you, I charged you as a father to his children. I urged you to live a life um, that is, or to walk in a manner worthy of God, I believe is his words. And so he left you this question, how do you know if you're doing that? How do you know if, in this case, the church there is walking in a manner worthy of God? And, and how do you and I, as individuals, know if we're doing that? Or to phrase it another way, how do I know that I'm pleasing Him? Or, or to phrase it in the college way, how do I know what God's will is for my life? Right? That's, that's a question I hear once or twice every few minutes in college ministry. <laughs> uh, how do I know what God wants? How do I know if I'm doing His will? How do, how do I know if I'm making the decisions that he wants me to make? How do I know? How do I know if I'm walking in a manner worthy of God? What do you look at to evaluate those things? Um, so I want to talk with you just a little bit about that and how we tend to go about that and how I believe we ought to go about that. Um, let me tell you what I believe the most intuitive way. What I mean by that is like the way that we may not necessarily say this out loud, but this is the way that we most naturally or kind of automatically, um, the method we go by to judge whether or not God is pleased with me, whether or not I'm doing His will, and that is, um, are things going well in my life? Are things going well? Um, becomes kind of one of the primary indicators. Let me, let me take that first to the community level, to like the church level before we get down to the individual for a second. How do you know if a church is being the kind of church that God wants it to be? How do you know if a church is walking in a manner worthy of God, as Paul says about the Thessalonians? Well, like the best way we know how, the most obvious way we know how to see if a church is doing well is by, well, looking at it and, and seeing if things are going well. Is it, is it growing, right? Is it, is it a big church? Are, are people coming there? Are there a lot of people coming on Sunday? Are there buildings going up? Are there uh, really amazing programs for the youth and for kids' ministry? Is there really great teaching? Um, do they have a good reputation in the world? Like, are they well-respected in their community? Or by the, does the world look at them and go, wow, that, that's a cool place. That's a cool people group. That's how we know but that's how we tend to go to figure out whether a church is doing well. I think of uh, maybe kind of one of the most uh, quintessential examples of this is this church that probably many of you have heard of called Saddleback Church in California. And the pastor, if you haven't heard the church, you've probably heard the pastor, Rick Warren. And, and he's the guy who back uh, probably 10 to 15 years ago in that range wrote this famous book, The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, Saddleback Church, where Rick Warren is at, runs an attendance on Sunday of about 20,000 people. Um, and so it is, it is a huge church that is growing, and things are going well for Saddleback. And, and, and then Warren writes this book, Purpose Driven Life, which sold 30 million, million copies. And it's not just copies that were going to Christians and to other churches. There were non-Christians picking this up and look at, looking at it and going, there's something to this. There's something to this guy and what he's writing. This is worth looking at. And, and uh, Warren began to be called America's pastor 
Like that was kind of America looked to him. He, when, when Obama first came into office back in 2008, he was called in and asked to give kind of the, the prayer at the inauguration there because he was kind of seen as America's pastor. The world or, or the, the country looked to him with an appreciation, with a love for him, with a view. And, and, and you may or may not know this, but, but those of us in ministry know that when you go to ministry conferences, it's guys like Rick Warren that they bring in to speak. Because that's the kind of guy that you want to emulate. That's the kind of church that you want to imitate. I want, like what he's doing is working. What he's doing must be what God is wanting us to do. So I want to do that. And so we bring those kind of guys in to come and speak and talk. If things are going well for the church, if it's growing, if big things are happening, if it's respected, that must mean that it's a church that's walking in a manner worthy of God. And listen, I do believe growth is good. I do believe it's what God wants from us. I do believe that we ought to pray for it and long for it. I think of Acts 2.47 where Luke is describing the church in Jerusalem as it's first getting started and it says that they grew in favor in the eyes of the people. That is, the people around them looked at them and said, I mean, there's something cool about this. And then it said, and the Lord added to them daily the number of those who were being saved. That's a good thing. Growth Things were going well for that church, Luke says, and it is clear that they were living the way God wanted them to, that they were walking in a manner that was pleasing to Him, that was worthy of Him. However, there are two problems, at least, with letting this be the primary litmus test as to whether a church is doing what it ought to be doing. Two key problems that come to mind. The first is this, that the largest church in America at this time is one based down in Houston, Texas. And it is um, not a stretch to say that it is a church that is not walking in a manner worthy of God. There is more attendees coming to this, at least single site, okay? So there are multi-site churches that, that have more people. But to this single site, there are more people showing up at this church on a Sunday morning than anywhere else in America and that is not a sign of God's working in them or a sign that they are pleasing to Him. That they are preaching things other than the gospel, preaching things other than Jesus. You, you know the church, or at least you know the pastor, Joel Osteen, down in Houston, Texas. And, 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 and for him to have a large church does not mean that his church is living the way it ought to be. The second problem with using growth and success and um, big ministries and respect from the world around it as, as a litmus test is that the Bible often speaks to the opposite of that. The Bible sometimes says it's actually different than that. There's this really interesting passage in Revelation where, where John is writing to the churches, but he's writing to them on behalf of Jesus, these seven churches in Asia Minor. And there's this church in Sardis. And, and the way Jesus starts his letter to the church in Sardis is, is fascinating and a little bit haunting. When Jesus says this, To the church in Sardis, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In other words, you, you have a church that from the outside looks like everything is going well. You have a church that, that maybe looks like it's thriving, that maybe is doing big things, that has cool stuff going on, but Jesus says, I, I know that that's your rep reputation, but that's not the truth. 
says, you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And, and, and you contrast that actually with the church that Jesus talks about right after, which is the church in Philadelphia there. And there Jesus says, I know that you have but little power. That is, you look weak. The culture around you is pressing in on you and you have no respect from outsiders and nobody likes you and you're this little fledgling church but Jesus says, I'm pleased with you. You're faithful. You're doing what I want you to do. I know your works are complete. And, and so it seems that, that what, what looks like everything is going well, what looks like good things, what looks like success is not always a marker of the way Jesus deems success. We're living worthy of God. Um, I also know this, and I could list a number of different verses, but actually because of our passage that we just read. Look at it again, 1 Thessalonians 1. Starting, it's in verse 12 that he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And then Paul seems to be saying, you did it, because this is what he says in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he says, we thank God because you received it as the word of God and it is changing in you and it is working in you. And then he says, verse 14, for, in other words, this is how I know that God's word is at work in you. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind. Paul says, you want to know how I can tell that you are living a life worthy of the Lord? Things are not going well for you. I can tell because you're getting beat up. I can tell because you're imitating those churches in Judea. This is what's actually kind of interesting. That, that passage I mentioned, Acts 2.47, the church that was growing and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved and it was growing in the eyes of the favor. That's the same church that Paul says was getting beat up in Judea. So actually you can be growing and also you can be faithful and like getting beat up and getting persecuted and suffering. And, and Paul says the Thessalonian church, it did seem to be growing, but it was suffering. Things were not going well. And Paul says, and that is a sign that you are pleasing God. I, I don't know if you've ever been in this spot before. I know I have, like this thought that, man, if the church could just get its act together, then we could like really do some amazing things in this world. Like if the church would get would stop being so hung up on lesser things like politics or our own agenda. If the, if the church would stop being so full of hypocrites or hate, if we could really just get down to the truth of the gospel message and show people um, this Savior, Jesus, who loves them deeply and who died for them in order to save them from their sins, if they could like see that and if we would really adequately display the gospel message, then the world could start to change. And I've thought that before, but, but that does not seem to be the case in Scripture. Jesus doesn't say if you stick really close to the truth and if you make sure that you don't become too hypocritical, if you make sure that you don't become too judgmental, if you make sure that you really focus on the gospel and preach it, everyone's going to love you. In fact, he says the opposite, Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. 
woe to you when the world really likes you, when the world thinks highly of you. Because they thought really highly of the false prophets as well. Um, I should say, like, like this is kind of the interesting thing with Saddleback. Saddleback is this church that was really that that has grown a lot and is still, from what I know, growing and looks really awesome. But but one of the ways that I know that Saddleback is actually cool is that they've in in recent years taken a lot of shots from the culture around them. When they stood up in California, and I believe 2008. Over, over the, the kind of the law or the amendment Prop 8, which was against gay marriage or whatever, when, when they stood up for that, um, the culture turned on them quick. And they had people literally lining up outside their church protesting um, against them. And, uh, and, and so they were willing for things to go poorly for them. Here, actually, one of the things I love about that story is when the protesters all lined up, what Saddleback did is they went and bought a bunch of donuts and water and coffee and fed all the people protesting <laughs> against them. Um, which is just awesome. Um, but, but I love that, that they were willing to, to let things go poorly for them, to let things get difficult for them. And that's a sign that they may be living in a manner worthy of God. So let's talk about this real quick on the individual level. Um, so there's this thing that I'm sure most of you have heard of called the prosperity gospel. Um, it's kind of more common name sometimes. It's health and wealth gospel. And that is the idea that if God... Like that God loves his children enough that if we are pleasing to him, that God desires to bless us physically with health, that, that if, if we are really in God's will, that we shouldn't be suffering from sickness. He'll keep us safe and keep us healthy. And if we're really in God's will, he's going to bless us financially. We'll have, as they like to say, God's favor in our life. And, and, and so we'll have, and it's known as prosperity, that God will prosper us. That's, that's what He wants to do. Now, most of us in this, in this room, hopefully, are able to see and understand that, that that is um, not just unbiblical, but anti-biblical. That that truth, that, that, that if you're in God's will, you're going to be blessed with physical health and with with financial riches and blessing. That's ridiculous and runs counter to Scripture. It runs counter to Jesus, who, as far as I can tell, I'm just taking a shot here, but, but seems to be more pleasing to God than anyone else who ever walked on the face of the earth. Right? And, and things did not, like, that did not end up with physical safety. It did not end up with health for him. That did not end up with wealth for him. When you look at the Apostle Paul and the things that he went through, which we'll read about. And I believe that Paul was walking in a manner worthy of God, but it did not work out for him financially or physically. Um, And so we see this all throughout that it does not go. We see these multiple warnings actually in the Bible to rich people and, and be careful of wealth. Be careful of the riches that you gain because those things have an easy tendency to lead you away from the Lord. So, so I think most of us know in here that the, pros, the prosperity gospel is not legit, that it's not biblical, and, and that that is not the way by which we gauge our lives and how pleasing we are to God. We know that, right? But listen to the way we talk when things start to go poorly in our life. When, when things start to fall apart and, and we don't get into the program that we wanted to get, or when, when the person that we knew that like we were going to spend the rest of our lives with, when they just decide it's not working out and they bail on us, or, or when, when we lose that job, or when things aren't going well in school, and, and it seems like stuff starts to crumble, we, we find ourselves saying things like, what am I doing wrong? 
Like, what, why is God, like, punishing me? Or, or when you watch a friend that's going through a really difficult thing and you say something like, it just doesn't make any sense. They're such a good person. Like, why would God let them go through that? We had this, this family friend, um, the, or this, this family that, that they're kind of friends of ours. They're, they're a little bit more friends of my, my wife. She worked with, with the, the mom in this family, and they have these kids, and their youngest daughter... Um, has been diagnosed with a disease I, I can't even pronounce or whatever, and, and, and she's basically, I mean, basically it's a death sentence. She's losing, uh, she's two or three years old, and she's losing all the use of her muscles, and she's losing right now the ability to swallow, and she's losing her sight, and, and at most they say she'll make it to seven. And, and this is a really, like, godly couple, and this is a really good um, like Jesus loving couple and, and, and you can't help sometimes I can't help but think like why them why they're trying to be faithful to you God they're trying to obey you why them but, but when I ask those kinds of questions what's the implied assumption there the assumption is that if God is pleased with a person then life ought to go well for them and when I say, when things go wrong, and I say, what am I doing wrong? That's assuming that, that if things are going wrong, God must not be pleased. That, that if, I'm going, if I'm living rightly, then, then things are going to go well. That ignores texts like Hebrews 12, which I love is, is a good reminder to me. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 8. I want to read this to you. He quotes actually first from Proverbs, but he says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Um, that's the quote from Proverbs, and then this is what the writer of Hebrews says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. So, just background real quick. The writer here is writing to a group of Christians who are facing persecution for their faith. And they're being kicked out of their families. And they're facing financial strain and struggle because some of them are losing jobs and people won't do business with them. And some of them have been thrown in jail for this. And the writer says, this is God's discipline in your life. And he says, for, um, it is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. Um, so, so what the writer in Hebrews says is like God actually is allowing these things to happen into your life for your good. He is disciplining you. It is out of His great love that these things, contrary to what so many people think, things are happening bad in my life. What am I doing that, God, that is making God so mad? And the writer here says, no, no, no. The bad things are not a sign that He's mad. Actually, sometimes they can be. But even in that, actually, the bad things are a sign that he loves you. I have these, actually, so I have three kids, and most of you know them. Ella, seven, Hudson, who's five, and Hadley, who's three. And it's interesting to see the way they all kind of are so different and unique. And one of the ways is the way they all respond to discipline. 
can be a little bit different. Um, Hudson is Hudson is like the is generally the more soft-hearted one. Like he's the he's the most likely to break. He's the most likely to cry or to get upset or whatever. Hadley, my youngest, is the most likely to laugh after being disciplined, <laughs> which like drives me crazy. And uh, and Ella, depending on the mood, she's the most likely to, in the middle of getting mad, say things like, "Why is everybody so mean to me?" That's that's like her chant. Everyone is mean to me all the time. You and Mom are always mean to me. And that's what she's. That's that's when we discipline her. That's what she she wants to take that as a lot. Why are you so mean to me? What she doesn't get, or maybe she's. I hope she's getting, but just trying to deny, is that my discipline of her is my love for her. I'm not doing those things to be mean to her. I'm doing those things because I'm trying to shape her into something better because I want her to share in God's holiness. And could it be that difficult things are happening in your life and if you listen, I, my dad, whenever, whenever we used to get spankings, whenever we were a kid, um, he would, I remember this one thing that he always said um, like while we were being put over his knee. Um, and, and he always said this one line, most, most parents, like the cliche line is what? This is going to hurt me, well, this is going to hurt you, right? Okay, that wasn't my dad's line, because that's not true, let's be honest, okay? This hurts me more, okay? Um, this is my dad's line, always. I'm doing this because I love you. Doing this because I love you. And I try to make that my line with my kids. I want them to know that. And I want them to know as they grow up that the difficult things that are happening, maybe when hard things are happening in your life, if you'll stop for a little bit and listen, maybe what you'll hear is, I'm doing this because I love you. That, that God allows these things. And, and by the way, don't always assume, like the word discipline, that doesn't necessarily mean punishment. I discipline my kids in ways other than punishment. Like I, I make them make their bed every day or clean their room or do their... That's, that's not punishment, but it is discipline. And so going through hard things doesn't even mean that there's like something bad I did. Um, sometimes, sometimes there is, and I'm facing the consequences of that. Sometimes he's simply disciplining. But, but, but let me kind of move to this in, in kind of our last um, movement of this. Um, I'm not just talking, this is where this gets weird, I'm not just saying to you that difficulty and suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. It is, all right? But I'm actually saying to you a step further than that, and Paul, I believe, is saying, difficulty and suffering is not just like a normal thing that you need to be ready for and expect. Discipline and suffering is a mark of godliness in your life. Is a mark of something, this is what Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you want to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Jesus says in John 15 to his disciples before he leaves, if they hated me, then they're going to hate you. And if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. That is, they don't, the world does not like Jesus so one clear sign that I'm becoming more and more like Jesus is that the world doesn't like me very much either. Um, so, so let me rephrase this again. I'm not just saying to you that you should expect suffering. I'm saying to you that as a Christian, you should live in a way that causes your suffering. And that's harder. And that's a little more uh, gut-wrenching. 
See, I can get to the point where I go, yeah, suffering is going to happen in my life and, and God is good in it and God is going to discipline me in it and he's going to make me like Jesus and I can go through that. It is, it is one thing to say that it is a lot harder to say I ought to live my life in such a way that it causes suffering to me. Because let's be honest, um, well, if we're just talking culture first, we live in a culture that is programmed around avoiding suffering and discomfort at every level, Right? Got a headache? We got Tylenol for that. You don't have to feel that anymore. You don't like sweating? We got AC for that. You don't have to, you don't have to feel that. Even on, the most basic, even on the most basic level, our culture and technology is consistently being built around what keeps me from being uncomfortable, what keeps me from even the tiniest about bit of suffering. And, and that is me, actually. That's, that's not just the culture like... Uh, top three idols in my life is that I live my life in a way that tries to avoid suffering, that tries to avoid discomfort. Whether that is people not liking me, or awkward conversations about Jesus with my neighbor, or whether that is people um, saying angry things, or whether that is costs um, financially to me, I, I often I cling to comfort as though it's of the utmost importance and, and and the Bible says that the Christian life means I will live in a way that, that brings suffering to me. So then what do I do with that? If you were called to live in a way that brings suffering to you, what does that mean? Does that mean you're supposed to go and try and make people mad so that you can get persecuted? Everybody go be Preacher Bob this next week. <laughs> Call people enough names and you can get persecuted, right? Like, like, how do we, because it, it is one thing back in the first century when the church is getting persecuted more, but what does that look like today? Like, when, when I don't get persecuted as much for that, should I still be expecting persecution? Should I still be living for suffering? And there are some Christians that in different places in history, especially like where the church was prominent, and you're not really going to get persecuted for being a Christian, there are Christians who have taken up the, the practice of self-flagellation, which is where literally they beat themselves with whips in order to experience the suffering of Jesus, in order to, to discipline their bodies and try and beat the sin out of themselves, and in order to, to try and experience the suffering that they feel they ought to do, they, they literally flog themselves. So is that what we do? How are we... How am I supposed to experience this persecution? Am I supposed to chase after that in order to really live a godly life? Um, I want to give you one more text. Uh, I say, no, never mind, I'm lying to you. Two more texts. <laughs> this one is in 2 Corinthians 8. And this, I think, sheds a lot of light on what Christian suffering ought to be and how much we ought to go after it. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is talking and he's defending his ministry. In the town of Corinth, there are people who are bragging about how awesome they are. So Paul decides he's going to mock them by bragging about how awesome he is. Okay? Um, so it's kind of like if Jim Johnson were writing a letter. Um, so he says this. He says, um, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they, sorry, this is 2 Corinthians 11, and I'm starting in 22. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. And here's where he gets to suffering. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. 
I'm talking like a madman, so this is his parentheses. JK, you guys. Um, I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, he says, I've had far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In to- By the way, I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase, safest place to be is in the center of God's will. Tell that to Paul, right? Um, um, yeah, he uses the word, how many times can you use the word danger in a sentence, right? Um, he says, I am in toil and in hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? This is Paul describing his suffering. Here's what's fascinating. This is not all the same kind of suffering. Some of the suffering comes from going to the right, or you could say actually the wrong town, where they don't like him, and the government comes after him there. Some of it is not the government. Some of it is mob mob violence, persecution for people around it. But some of it is not persecution at all. Some of it is shipwrecks. Some of it is natural things like hunger and being cold. Some of it is mental, like the angst and emotional turmoil he experiences over churches that he's planted. And this is, this is what we get from this. Um, the suffering that Christians are supposed to experience is not always like you're supposed to get beat up or persecuted. It is, though, always supposed to be gospel-related. That Paul doesn't suffer for suffering's sake. He suffers because he wants to be faithful to the gospel and faithful to Jesus. And sometimes that means being cold. And sometimes that means not having a lot of money because I'm giving my money to greater things. And sometimes that means um, going hungry. And sometimes that means getting in accidents as I'm traveling to try and share the good news with other people. Paul's not running after suffering because suffering feels really good and because that's what Christians should do. He's simply running after Jesus and that's going to naturally sometimes, not all the time, sometimes lead to suffering. So how do you know if you're walking in a manner worthy of God? It is not by looking at your life and seeing if everything is going well. Not a great indicator. It's also not by looking at your life and seeing if everything sucks. Not a great indicator, actually. We don't suffer for suffering's sake. The way you know if you are being faithful is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, that you receive the Word of God as it is, the Word of God which is at work within you. The way you know is if, the, if, if God's Word is doing a work in your life and if your life is being more and more conformed to Him. And here's where the suffering comes in. If that never costs you anything, if life is never hard because of your Christian life, that's at least a hint that the Word of God might not be working in you that much. Because it is going to cost you sometimes. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross daily deny himself and follow me. And so it is going to cost us. Um, and, and this is, by the way, a bit of a downer of a message for our second week, right? 
And, and, and I, even as I was preparing this and driving here, I was like, man, this is kind of a bummer of one to give to talk a little bit about tonight. But I really do believe that this is not only, um, well, yeah, that this is not only what we're called to, but that this doesn't have to be a downer of a message. I believe that this is worth it. It doesn't make sense for the world. It doesn't make sense in a culture that says at all costs, hold on to your comfort. But it does make sense if this is true. There's another passage that Jesus says, and I'll just close with this. Jesus says to you, Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus says there's actually something bigger than Drew's own petty little kingdom and as much comfort as he can hang on to um, that there's his kingdom, and that that is, that is worth anything that I might face. Um, let me pray for this difficult thing and, and ask God to do, do something in us through it. Dear God, I, I, I do. I, what's hard about this message is not just that it's a, it's a tough thing to say, that the Christian life will sometimes lead us to suffer, that it ought to, not all the time, but sometimes lead us to suffer. It's hard to say that just because that's difficult, but it's also hard to say that because you see through to my heart and you know that that is not the way I live my life a lot of times. And uh, I confess to you my own tendency to avoid discomfort and hard things at all costs. And Lord, I, I pray for not just forgiveness for that, but for the grace to overcome that and to the grace to love your kingdom and your reward more than my comfort. And I pray that over us in here, that these students in here would love you enough to even do hard things for you and to even sometimes suffer for you. And Lord, that, uh, that you would enable them to live, to walk in a manner worthy of you. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. We've got snacks and food that will be out here in a second. Uh, hang out for a little bit. Let it be around you.